Welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. I'm your guest, Christopher Howell. And we are your hosts, Parker Dillman. And Stephen Craig. This is episode 162. Two quick announcements before we jump into the podcast. KeyCon 2019 is coming up soon. It is a user conference for a popular open source CAD program, KeyCAD. It is happening April 26th and 27th, 2019 in Chicago, Illinois. This is the first and largest gathering of hardware developers using KeyCAD. Talks at the conference will span hardware design, revision control, scripting, manufacturing considerations, and proper library management and getting started developing the underlying tools. All announced talks have been listed on the conference site, which is in our show notes. Then the next announcement is MacFab will be at South by Southwest in Austin this year. We are teaming up with Particle.io to put together a hardware happy hour. It will take place this Friday, March 8th from 4 p.m. to 8 p.m. at the Jester King Brewery. Check the show notes for full details and to RSVP. Join us for food, beer, and network with fellow hardware engineers to kick off your South by Southwest weekend. Open EVSE started in February 2011 with a simple experiment to try to generate the J1772 pilot signal on an Arduino. One experiment led to another to another until a prototype J1772 compatible controller was born. With lots of feedback and interest, a few boards were offered to other hardware hackers. What started as six boards built in the first batch turned into many thousands. Today, Open EVSE powers charging stations from many manufacturers all over the world. So, Chris, what is Open EVSE and who are you? So, we uh, are obviously an open source company. Um, there was a problem in the industry. Charging stations were extremely expensive, and they were really just a glorified, you know, very safe power cord. So we really wanted to drive the cost down and provide a product to the community that was more affordable and was cool, you know, that you could hack. You could do lots of cool things with. So hacking power cables, huh? Absolutely. High-powered high car charging cables. That sounds like a really generally safe thing to hack, right? <laughs> sure, why not? 20 kilowatts, you know, just, just a little bit. So Chris, who are you, though? So I'm a, a network engineer by trade. Uh, I've always been interested in electronics. Uh, my grandfather was an amateur radio operator, and you know we always uh, you know played on the radio together and built circuits together. And I've always had an interest in electronics. Um, this particular project came out of just desperation, really. I had a quote that was insanely expensive, and I just started playing around. You know, uh, I, I I love the fact that uh, you call it a project even though like it's like a huge thing now, like where you're offering kits and, and manufacturing stuff. I just, I don't know. That's a great thing. I love it. That yeah, it started out <laughs> as a project. It, it, I never intended for it to, to go uh, where it went, but uh, it's been a fantastic ride. I've really enjoyed uh, every bit of it. And so, so I guess it was because of the lack of open, openness with car chargers is why you decided to get into this. Correct. Absolutely. The lack of openness, uh, the lack of options, and, you know, the fact that everybody was, was really being gouged at the time, uh, the cost was just insanely expensive, way, way more than it should have been. So what, what makes this different than just like an extension cord, I guess is a good way to put it. 
So there's a protocol, uh, you mentioned it in the introduction, J1772, and it's, it's kind of uh, checks and balances. So uh, you wouldn't want you know, just any average person playing with, you know, like I mentioned, 20 kilowatts worth of power uh, energized at the end of a connector. So basically the standard ensures that there's no power available at the end of the connector until all of the safety parameters are met. So basically it, it also uh, tells the car how much power it may draw from the circuit uh, because the vehicle itself isn't going to know what's available. And that actually is a dynamic uh, setting. So the available current can change depending on many different things. You may have uh, generation capability or solar availability. You may want to, to alter your charge current uh, at different times. So it provides a protocol to communicate from the station to the vehicle and the vehicle back to the station. So if you're running off solar and a cloud rolls on over, your charger can say, hey, you know, you can't be so hungry. Absolutely, we have a solar divert feature uh, where we partnered with another open source company in the UK, it's Open Energy Monitor. So their energy monitor can uh, measure the output of a solar and we can adjust the car uh, charging to dynamically adjust to match what the solar production is at any given time. So the, the uh, J1772 protocol, what all does that encompass? Is that just the signaling between things or is that more? It is more than that. So uh, it is the, the shape of the connector, it's the signaling, and it's some of the safety features that are required. Uh, there are other safety features that are required by uh, UL specifications as well. So what kind of um, so what kind of uh, signal is it? Is it like TTL? Is it a uh, just serial connection? Is it a COM port? No, it's actually an analog connection. So what happens is uh, the charging station provides a 12 volt uh, signal, and when you plug in the electric vehicle, it drops that 12 volt down to nine volts. When the vehicle is ready to charge, it drops it down further down to six volts, and uh, that signals that the, the, char, the car is ready to take a charge. Okay. So how, how does the communication between how much power the car can take and that kind of stuff happen? So what happens is that same signal, uh, once the charging station is ready, it turns on a PWM signal at one kilohertz. And the duty cycle is what specifies the uh, current that's available. So you alter the duty cycle to change the available current at any given time. That's a very interesting setup they have there. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the fact that it's, um, it, from the sound of it, it, it could all be done analog. Like you don't necessarily have to have smarts behind it or, or you know, the traditional sense of smarts. So um, I, I wonder why they, they decided to go with that. Yeah, that, that's a good question. I, th I think it's a some uh, fallback from history, uh, from the older EVs uh, back in the days of the EV1. Uh, I think they had a similar setup back then, uh, but it's also very simple to implement. Um, you know, it does have its limitations. Of course, you can't pass any data from the vehicle to the charging station or the other way, uh, but it is very simple to implement, both on the vehicle side and on the charging station side. Some people might think that's actually a benefit not being able to transfer data because of security reasons and stuff like that. Well, it may be a, a benefit uh, for security reasons, but there are some really interesting things we'd like to know from the vehicle. 
For example, right now we have no idea the state of charge of the battery. We don't know if the battery is completely empty or if the battery is completely full. So if we did have a, a data signal between, we could at least know that the battery is, say, you know, 68% charged. And then we can make decisions based on that. But since we have no idea how empty or full the battery is, uh, we, we can do, you know, we have limitations on, on how fast we can charge or what kind of decisions we can make since we have no clue what the state of charge of the battery is. Gotcha. Or how impatient the driver is. There you go. <laughs> you have to be prepared at all times to deliver the full load, right? Uh, you, well, you have to be able to uh, respect the pilot signal. So what happens is, uh, say, the, if the pilot signal is saying, hey, you have 16 amps available, it's the responsibility of the vehicle never to exceed that. Uh, so you can change that on, on many different, many different um, inputs. For example, if you have demand response with your utility, uh, we could uh, reduce the pilot when there's an energy shortage. Um, in the UK, they're actually... Uh, going the opposite way, the utilities are providing a incentive or a cheaper rate at certain times, and we speed up the charge when the rates drop. Uh, so there's uh, a lot of a lot of things you can do with a um, dynamic pilot signal to alter the the speed at which your car is charging. So besides the uh, SAE J seventeen seventy two, is there any other kind of regulations that you have to kind of engineer around? Uh, yeah, I mean, you have to, uh, there are UL uh, guidelines uh, that dictate some of the safety features that, that we have to implement. Uh, and basically, this is a safety device. It's a very smart power cord and safety device. So really, the number one focus has to always be safety. Uh, so every check that we do has a verification to it. Like, for example, uh, when we do ground fault testing, before every time we close the, the relay, we check that. We tickle it with a test coil just to make sure that the circuitry is working as expected. We also uh, want to ensure that the relay is open when it's supposed to be open and closed when it's supposed to be closed. So we actually do stuck contact detection to make sure that it really did open the circuit when it said we're supposed to open the circuit. So every safety feature has a verification along with it to ensure that all the systems are working correctly. Cool. Does uh, the, so the products that, that you provide, uh, this smart charger, do they have any, uh, any of the regulatory markings on them, like the UL uh, listing or, or anything of that sort? The individual project, the, the products and kits that we sell do not have UL listing on themselves. Uh, basically, when you list a, a charging station, you list it as a whole. Uh, device. There are companies that do use our products that do have UL listed products. Uh, there's a company called Wattzilla that builds their stations with our hardware and firmware, and they did go through the full UL testing for their charging station. So since really our target audience is manufacturers of stations and uh, kit builders and enthusiasts, we don't have UL listing on on those particular products. There's no way UL would ever certify a kit. They want to make sure it's built the right way in a factory that's that's certified. For sure. For so sure. some of our customers are UL certified that use our products, but the, the particular products we sell are not. So the, the kits, I'm actually kind of in, uh, curious about them. Uh, I, I, first of all, 
I want to ask, uh, how much interest are you seeing in the kits? Uh, when it came, when it comes to electric vehicles, uh, my initial thought would be that someone would just want to buy whatever it is, throw it up on the wall, and there you go, yeah, you're done, you know. But uh, you you offer kits that are, you know, build it from the ground up. So uh, how much interest are you having on that? There's actually a, a quite a lot of interest in the kits. Uh, the early electric vehicle drivers were. Uh, very technically minded people. Uh, we're starting to see a lot more of the general public buy electric vehicles where they're not going to want to put together a kit. But, um, you know, there's definitely a lot of people out there that want to understand how their charging station works. Uh, they want to be able to repair it when it breaks. And if you buy something off the shelf, there's no way they're going to sell you a controller board or a contactor or even provide you with a schematic. So there are a lot of people that want to be able to repair their equipment and understand how their equipment works. So we've actually had really good success with the kits. Yeah, actually, I've been doing a lot of research on, you know, eventually maybe designing or building my own electric vehicle. And one of the big questions that comes up when doing that is like, how do you still charge it? And, you know, having an open source charging solution is one of those things. Yeah, it's very helpful. And there's, uh, you know, when a company wants to develop a product, it's a lot easier for them to buy our kit and then add their secret sauce on top of our foundation. So uh, a lot of our kit sales do go to universities. They go to other manufacturers. They go to entrepreneurs who are trying to build something. So it really makes a great platform to start from. If you had to design all the electronics from scratch just to get you to the point where you could develop your product, that takes a lot longer. So we've seen a lot of uh, companies that are very interested in our kits to advance and accelerate their projects. For sure. So uh, what, what's included in the kits? What, what, if someone were to purchase a kit, what, what, what could they expect? So in the kit itself, um, we include everything you need except for the AC cable and the J1772 cable. It's all of the screws, all of the bolts, um, all of the electronics, all the wiring. And we've, we've made a lot, of, um, a lot of improvements over the years. So now, basically, you can build a kit with just a screwdriver. All of the uh, wires are, are harnesses that just plug right in. They're already the correct lengths. The electronics just screw in. The firmware is already preloaded. So basically, if you can operate a screwdriver, you could put together one of these kits. We also do sell bundles, which do include the electric vehicle cable as well. So literally, you just put it together and slap it on the wall. You don't need any other uh, components or programmers, or you don't even need to solder. No soldering, no crimping. Just just assemble it. Just follow our uh, online build guides. And these are intended to be plugged into a mains outlet somewhere nearby, right? Correct. We uh, generally use the... Uh, NEMA 1450 outlet, which is uh, basically an RV outlet. They're found all over North America and campgrounds and, and at home. They're very inexpensive to have installed on your property because they're very common with, with RVs. So I've got a question with compatibility because I know, well, I think I know that te like Tesla uses their own kind of thing. Like on auto manufacturers, that standard J... 1772, do they all adhere to that standard or are they different or, and how do y'all handle that? So all of the automakers do, including Tesla. Tesla just uses a different shape. So they include an adapter 
that adapts their special shape to the J1772 shape. So all of the electronic compatibility is the same, and, and our charging stations are compatible with Tesla, as well as all the other modern uh, vehicles, including vehicles overseas. There are other standards in Europe. Uh, one of them is called IEC Type 1 and IEC Type 2, and our controllers are also compatible with those as well. So when is it just marketing when Tesla just says supercharger? No, their superchargers are, are abs- absolutely super. It's uh, really uh, incredible what the amount of power that they're putting through that very small connector. So their, their superchargers are, are really the best in the industry. And they're okay. everywhere. So it makes uh, long-distance driving uh, very easy to do. So what's the, I guess, compared to your charger, what makes that charger different from a technical standpoint besides just more power? Well, from a technical standpoint, what's happening is um, our charging station really, you know, like we said, was a smart power cord. The actual electronics that convert the AC to DC are on board the vehicle. So the actual charger is on the vehicle. The okay, Tesla supercharger okay. is a DC device. So it, it actually is the charger. It's an offboard charger, basically, that's very, very high power. It takes, you know, the 480 volt three phase electricity, converts it to DC at very high power and then manages the battery as it puts the uh, the energy into the vehicle. Okay, gotcha. So it is actually almost fundamentally different kind of charging mechanism. Absolutely. Yeah, there's got to be some more smarts behind that. I'm sure there's communication there. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And they actually have digital communication on the DC quick chargers. They have a can. Uh, type signaling that's that's constantly sending data back and forth between the vehicle and the quick charger. Okay. You, you know, out of curiosity, do you know how many uh, of your users are Tesla uh, drivers? I don't know that answer, but I, I would guess that uh, it would be in the thousands. We have about uh, 15,000 plus installed stations at this point, all the way from the deserts of uh, you know, Mojave, California, out in the middle of Siberia. So do you know anything um, about the going the other way? Like I was talking about if you were someone who is designing or building an electric vehicle, the battery management is a big deal. Do you know of anyone that's kind of working on that? That yeah, would basically some, work with this kind of standard? Yeah, there's some open source work that's going on to... Uh, decode some of the stuff that, that Tesla's doing, actually. They're, they're trying to replicate all of the different components within the Tesla battery and battery management system in an open source uh, fashion. I believe that's happening over in the UK. Oh, cool. I'll have to take, check that out. There's always a, a, you know, a, a very uh, vibrant DIY community for, for just about everything uh, having to do with electric vehicles. So whether you're building a battery or battery management system, or you're building your own charging systems. There's there's plenty out there in the in the open source and DIY communities. Cool. So, uh, Stephen, do you want to go to the uh, listener questions that we have? Uh, real quick, I want to just ask about uh, the your energy system or program. Uh, I'm not entirely sure what to call it. Uh, this is this is some data management and gathering system on your charging, correct? Yeah, so what we do is every 30 seconds we take uh, current and power readings as well as temperature readings with inside the enclosure and we send them up to um, our server. This is another product of the Open Energy Monitor um, 
project, they have an application called Emon CMS. So basically, we're taking this data every 30 seconds and, and graphing um, you know, the power over time, the temperature while you're charging, and as well as usage for each day. And you know, some of the cool things you can do, especially with, with internal temperatures, you can start predicting failures. Uh, when the temperature rise is higher than you'd expect, you know that something's wrong. There, there may be you know, a loose connector or uh, you know, something going on with the, the charging station. So how are you actually uh, reporting that data? Is it over Wi-Fi? Is there something of that sort? Yeah, our station uh, um, has Wi-Fi built into it. And uh, it basically has a router type interface where you can log into it and uh, change settings. You can uh, set up session options, like say, example, add five kilowatts before you stop, uh, charge for two hours. Or you can set up timers uh, if you have uh, different uh, rates you can say start charging at 11 p.m. and stop charging at 6 a.m. to get the best rate. So within that Wi-Fi uh, interface, we, we send the data to our Emon CMS servers if you choose to. You can also uh, build the same thing. It's an open source project. So you could actually build a local server within your own house and never send any of your data out to the cloud. We give our users a choice. That's really cool. Is that running on? Because I, I met Chris at the Particle.io conference. Is it running off a Particle? Was it Photon? It is not. It's not running off a, a Particle. Right now, we're uh, using an ESP8266. Okay. And we'll likely upgrade that in the future to an ESP32. That's a project I'm working on right now. Uh, whether or not we go the, the Particle route, um, that's still uh, under evaluation and discussion. Cool. So John Cutler of tw from Twitter asks, um, is there any work on allowing load sharing for multiple EVSEs, sharing a circuit and or supporting the Hydra style setup? So I'm going to guess what is the Hydra style setup, if I guess if you know. <laughs> so yeah, Hydra was a project uh, by one of uh, Open EVSC early customers, a guy named Nick, a great guy. And what he did was uh, take a, he basically built a splitter so he regenerated the pilot signal twice, shared the current in half, and allows this little box to plug into one charging station and then charge two vehicles. So it was a pretty cool little setup he had. Um, can you do that with uh, OpenEVSE? You can actually do that today. It just takes a little bit of work. Uh, OpenEVSE supports MQTT uh, messaging protocol, and if you have an MQTT broker, as well as uh, software like Node-RED, for example, you can actually build whatever logic you want for charging your vehicle or sharing load. You know, you could uh, increase charging based on positive Twitter sentiment, or you, know, you could decrease <laughs> charging based on stock value of a certain company. So you could actually build any logic you can imagine uh, with Node-RED and then control the charging station with MQTT. So that is possible today. Uh, we are working on ways to make this a lot easier for the user so that you could just click a button and do the sharing. So, yeah, we definitely uh, have that as an upcoming feature, um, as well as you can do it today if you're willing to put in the work. And he also has date-based scheduling, which you've already explained, it already does that through the app. Yeah, the, the current app, uh, it basically all seven days of the week are the same. But uh, the Open Energy Monitor guys are working on a little plug-in to their software that will give you more granular uh, schedule-based. So 
Uh, we will have uh, more um, more complicated scheduling coming in the, the near future that can can pick out weekdays versus weekends and, and set multiple schedules and even take uh, external inputs and schedule based on lowest rate or you know whatever uh, grid conditions are available at the time. So we do have some intelligent scheduling coming very soon. Cool. And then uh, smaller, more portable versions, but I'm looking at, you got one on the wall, and I think that's pretty small. Yeah, our current station is, is just about uh, nine and a half pounds, so it's very small and portable, uh, but we will be coming out with even smaller versions very soon. Uh, we did have a basic station a few years ago that was basically the same station without the LCD display and a little bit more compact. compact. Uh, so we are going to reintroduce that in a different form factor fairly soon, and we may even go another form fact even smaller than that. And I think more portable. It's like, I guess, I'm I'm imagining like a solar panel, like like opening up. <laughs> yeah, I don't think we'll be doing that. Um, that's a great idea. I'd love to see you know solar panels and and batteries on a trailer to uh, charge stations. Uh, vehicles that would be uh, that would be pretty cool. Well, or you and, need and like 144 AA batteries. Yeah, exactly. There was actually a guy uh, that had a, I believe it was a Cadillac, um, and he put a battery and a charging station in the back of the uh, trunk. So he definitely had a portable charging station. He could drive it to wherever he needed it. So, so the the design in terms of making it more compact. Uh, I looked at your build guide earlier today, and it, and it, correct me if I'm wrong, but it looks like a lot of the design was driven by the enclosure, in, in a sense, where it seemed like the enclosure was picked and then the electronics fit inside the enclosure, because there's a little bit of extra room in there that could be uh, shrunk a little. Yeah, so we used a standard enclosure from a company called Polycase. They have a lot of different options in enclosures, and they do... Uh, machining and printing on the enclosure. So that made a, a really good choice. The size was actually driven by the current. Uh, since we're trying to do about 48 amps of current, we needed to have a relay that was large enough to, to support that. So really the, the end current is what's going to dictate the, the size of the station. We can get a 40 amp station a little bit smaller, and we can do a, a 24 amp station if we integrate everything on the controller board, like integrated relays as well. But we're limited to you know less than 30 amps if we go with smaller relays. So we can get it down in size, but we also have to shrink the power as well. And then he also asks, is there a Raspberry Pi version coming soon? We're not planning anything based on the Raspberry Pi. Uh, the guys in uh, in the UK, the Open Energy Monitor guys, they're playing around a little bit with with Raspberry Pis and banana pies to throw in charging stations, um, but. Right now, we're, we're sticking with the ESP32 and the 8266 for our, our comms. Cool. And then uh, Guy Thomas, who is uh, from our Slack channel, his handle is GRTYVR, um, asks, what is the current state of the vehicle charging grid, and what can we do to influence decision makers to move faster on adoption? Um, I have a response, and that's to buy <laughs> electric vehicles. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a good one. So actually, the infrastructure is, is doing very well. Um, Tesla kind of set the standard with their supercharger network. They build an, a nationwide network 
of quick chargers. And then they also have a program called destination chargers where at hotels and resorts and, and places you might be staying for a lot longer, they've been putting in destination chargers. So uh, if you own a Tesla, you can pretty much go anywhere in the United States without any problem at all or any prior planning. Uh, other manufacturers are having a little bit more difficulty. Uh, they built the vehicles and expected the networks to be built for them. That exactly didn't happen the way they hoped it would. So I think a lot of the manufacturers are starting to realize that, hey, you know, if we, if we want to have a nationwide network, we may have to, to build it ourselves or, or create a partnership to do that. Home charging is, is very easy. Uh, there's really not much you have to do to prepare a home for charging uh, Basically, if you can throw in an RV outlet, you're good to go. If you have other power constraints, you can charge slower, but you have to make sure that you'll be able to add enough miles to uh, match your daily commute in order to do that. Uh, and then around town, you know, I, I drive places and I'm surprised to, to find charging stations in places I had no idea where they, where they were. So really the infrastructure is, is really coming along very nicely. And because electric vehicles are generally charged at nighttime when energy is plentiful, uh, they really aren't having any impact on the grid itself. And isn't, uh, I think VW is being basically, it's part of that diesel gate um, oh, ruling. Is they, that was like five they're years ago. Forced to build, well, they're being forced to build a start charging grid kind of thing. Yeah, they are, are building a, a charging infrastructure and they've done some uh, public service announcement, advertisement as well as part of part of that uh, Dieselgate settlement. So hopefully a, a lot of good will come of that. And then uh, supercapacitors for buses or trains. Is there any progress in that area? I don't know about that. Now, now so that, that would be an interesting question, probably for Elon Musk, since uh, Tesla was, was trying to buy that supercapacitor company. So he probably knows something that we don't. So hey, I haven't you can ask anything. him, right? Uh, I could try. <laughs> <laughs> I met him once, but he never returns my calls anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think that isn't that the future just doing um, having giant inductive coils uh, in the concrete slab in your garage, right? So you just drive on top of it and your car just charges, right? That would be a cool way to do it. You know, there are I, losses involved with that, but... Um, you know, really plugging a, a car into a charger is, is no big deal. You know, it's the same as your cell phone. You plug it in at the end of the day and, you know, you start the next morning, it's full, ready to go. How long did it take to charge? I don't know, but it's it's ready to go in the morning. Yeah. I can imagine if you had a, a inductive charger, because inductive chargers work really well when your device, the coils are really close together, but you've got like, you know, five, six inches in a normal vehicle of air gap. And think about if your cat went underneath there. And it came out the next day with three eyeballs. <laughs> <laughs> or it just microwaved it. Yeah. yeah, maybe that would happen. Well, tw 20 kilowatts of inductive charging. Yeah, might, that might happen. So uh, that's actually going to be a uh, listener um, question there is figure out if you like how big of an inductive charger you would need to do 20 kilowatts. Uh, yeah, how many amps you'd have to send into a giant coil to, to actually produce well, that at the at the uh, load well it's not just load it's also the the you have a loss there right that's what, I, yeah. I don't know what the inductive loss is that's why i'm saying at the load you want you want 20 kilowatts so what do you have to dump into it to get there yeah that would be a lot yeah and is it cat safe 
<laughs> uh, okay, so I have one more question for you, Chris, before we let you go. All is right. What EV do you drive? So I started out with a Nissan Leaf, and I still do have a Nissan Leaf, but I also have a Tesla Model S, and my wife drives a Model X. Okay. And what EV would you suggest people to buy? Well, my recommendation would probably be the, the Tesla Model 3. Uh, it's a great car uh, at a reasonable price, and really what sets it apart from everything else is the nationwide network that Tesla has built. Uh, all the other manufacturers are probably five, eight years behind if they decided to build a network today. And a lot of them aren't at this point. So really that, that sets Tesla apart is they have that nationwide network and it makes it so useful. Um, you know, I haven't bought a, a drop of gas since uh, December 13th, 2012. So I haven't uh, bought gas in a very long time. And um, I've driven my car from... Uh, Los Angeles to Bar Harbor, Maine and back. So you really can go where you want to go. And, you know, there's really no limitations these days. That's cool. So, Chris, where is going to be the best place for people to learn more about you and Open EVSE? So the best place to learn would be our website, uh, openevse.com. Uh, we have a lot of information there. You can check out our uh, source code on our GitHub repositories. Uh, our build guides are linked, and uh, there's a store where you can buy components, kits, or even pre-built stations. Cool. Thank you for coming on to the podcast. All right. No problem. You got anything else, Stephen? No, I think I'm good. Hey, Chris, do you want to sign us out? I sure will. That was the Microfab Engineering Podcast. I was your guest, Christopher Howell. And we're your hosts, Parker Dillman. And Stephen Craig. Later, everyone. Take it easy. Thank you, yes, you, our listener, for downloading our show. If you have a cool idea, project, or topic, let Stephen and I know. Tweet us at MacFab, at Longhorn Engineer, or at AnalogENG, or email us at podcast at MacFab.com. Also, check out our Slack channel. If you're not subscribed to that podcast yet, click that subscribe button. That way you get the latest MEP episode right when it releases. And please review us wherever you listen, as it helps this show stay visible and helps new listeners find us.